0: Welcome to the NPM podcast. I'm John Burke, managing editor of NPM. Joining me today is Chris Taylor, the CEO and founder of Portland-based uh, utility-scale storage developer and owner, uh, GridStore. Welcome to the program today, Chris.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Great. Well, before we get into uh way too many topics that we have to talk about in battery storage today, I thought it'd um, be good for to just give us the our listeners a quick uh tour through who grid store is uh who their sponsor is and what markets you're currently in and what markets you're currently looking to go into
1: great thanks very much john um so grid store as you said in your intro is a utility scale front of the meter uh ipp our entire business is is that we don't do other we don't do generation we just do storage and it's all grid connected large scale um, we're not a technology company. We're technology agnostic. We procure equipment from a variety of tier one OEMs. Um, we're backed by Goldman Sachs Asset Management, uh, and they have raised a, a dedicated fund to support us. And um, the markets we're currently most active in are CAISO, where we have one our first project, which we just closed financing on uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that project will be going operational this fall in near Santa Barbara, California. And then we have a portfolio of assets uh, that we acquired uh, last year that are in mid to late stage development uh, in Southern California with CODs from 2024 to 2026 uh, that we're advancing the development of and expect to bring online in that timeframe. And then we're continuing to expand our portfolio in California through both Greenfield and MA. and And ERCOT is you know, not surprisingly the other market where we're active. I uh, don't have as much granular detail to provide there yet at this time, but we're we're active with a similar um, kind of approach, I guess, in terms of business model. We have, a, as our portfolio suggests, a focus on sites that are located in places that we think have a durable and persistent uh, nodal uh, story in terms of places that are characterized by being near large load pockets where siting new generation is going to be difficult and or new transmission, so areas... In or adjacent to large urban areas, where there's going to be fossil retirements and probably not a lot of new transmission or generation built, are the kind of sites that we that we have focused on thus far, and, and we see as having the longest, you know,
0: the, the greatest visibility on long term revenue. Great. Well, let's uh, jump into the Inflation Reduction Act, shall we? sure yeah so there were uh you know two very important um pieces of information contained within the IRA for standalone storage uh one was obviously the inclusion of the ITC tax for standalone storage for the first time ever uh and then um what came about was uh the inclusion of transferability uh for tax equity which was looked on as a potential benefit at least in the short term for storage developers, particularly as uh, bankers get accustomed to merchant storage, um, that this was looked at as a, a definitely a, a short to medium term option for some of these developers. Um, so why don't uh, you give us your view, Chris, on uh, how uh, transferability, particularly with the guidance issued recently, uh, impacts um, uh, standalone storage developers?
1: Yeah, I think broadly speaking, I think I agree with the consensus view that this is, you know, obviously it's a good thing for the industry. We need to bring in more sources of tax equity. Um, I've been working in, on that issue and advocating for that for quite some time, including in prior rules. Um, the tax equity market, in order to be functional and to be scale up to the scale of, of what we're trying to accomplish as a country, just based on adopted policies at the federal and state level, uh, we need a lot more liquidity in that market. We need much more. Um, we need we need less friction. Those those transactions. I've been doing this for twenty plus years, and the, the, the brain damage and cost associated with closing a tax equity transaction has Im- improved exactly zero percent in the last twenty years. Um, it's kind of embarrassing that we haven't been able to to make this a more efficient market. So I think the IRA is a, is a wonderful thing in terms of making both standalone storage eligible but with the transferability hopefully that will bring new entrants who don't have the expertise and maybe the bandwidth internally to manage a complex partnership flip structure that's usually a huge barrier to entry for most corporates there's a number of barriers to entry but that is one of them that hopefully transferability will address Um, there's things that will make that more challenging such as um, you know those buyers potentially wanting or insisting upon having some sort of guarantee or indemnity in case there's a recapture event for smaller developers, that's going to be challenging. They'll probably need to go to the insurance market to cover that, but still it creates optionality. More options is a good thing. Um, one piece that I think people haven't thought about too much that came up uh, recently in a panel I was on is these, the adder. Uh, the, the the adders to the ITC some of those are still a bit ambiguous and not that easy to to nail down and so how that gets handled whether it's in an m a transaction um you know is there an adder if you get the 10 percent do you pay somebody more money and similarly we're even seeing it with off takers <clears throat> you know if you're a if you're a regulated entity and you're purchasing from a battery and the battery suddenly is going to get a larger tax credit then in their mind they should try to capture some of that savings for their customers so I think how that gets baked into RA contracts how that gets baked into financings is going to be uh, a source of attention and stress for people
0: <laughs> for a little while yeah and also I uh, believe if I read this correctly um you know you couldn't trade um you couldn't transfer the, the adders that had to be correct uh in whole and so you know as as you guys go through your different iterations about domestic manufacturing and energy community and capturing the the LMI, Uh, you know, it seems like that's going to have to, it'll take time. It sounds like more than anything else.
1: Yeah. And hopefully we can just get clear, clear rules so that everyone knows that they're, you know, that they're in, in the fairway and doing what, what they're supposed to do. Um, You know, we, given the nature of our projects, we have a lot of sites that have potential for adders, whether it's due to brownfields, energy community, employment rates, etc. And from what I've been hearing, it seems like in the case of a decommissioned fossil plant, like that's pretty dispositive and easy to get comfortable with. But the employment related ones, like those employment numbers change every year based on last year's employment rate, this year's employment rate comparison, to national average, those as an example, trying to figure that out, you know, well in advance to get that baked into your financing,
0: or your pro forma is still fairly challenging. Um, before we uh jump into some other topics, um just on the domestic manufacturing front, just given all these announcements that have come uh down the pike uh for the, the gigafactory growth from the likes of Core and others, um, you know, what's your sense about um where the market's gonna be uh in terms of you know when we could really see real domestic content for storage?
1: Yeah, I, I feel pretty confident there's a strong consensus on this and it's 2026 it's it happens to be the house view of, of our PC team at Gridstore, store and almost everyone i've talked to in the space whether they're oems ipps etc that seems to be the consensus that for stationary storage at scale you know verifiable domestic content basically every supplier is telling customers 2026 maybe 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 if you're a good customer and everything breaks right you might get something in 2025 but our our business plan assumes by 2026 we will have a fully domestic um you know supply and that uh but between now and then it will be sort of catch as catch can largely because it takes time for those factories to come online and because so much of their production of the initial factories is going to be allocated to evs as opposed to stationary storage But we're really excited about this. I I guess I I may have a slightly contrarian view. I think this domestic content requirements, the wage and apprenticeship requirements, I think those are fantastic. I I wholeheartedly support them. Someone who's been in wind and solar for a long time, those industries didn't have those incentives or requirements in, in the early days. And it was a painful transition later on to go from a very offshore supply chain to a domestic supply chain. Our industry is so new that, I think that transition will be much, much easier. And I think it really positions the storage industry for much more sustainable growth to have a domestic supply chain that's got national security concerns addressed and really provides jobs for Americans. And all of those provisions are just gonna make storage a more palatable you know, uh, type of project for communities of all different demographics and politics. So
0: I, I think we should welcome this as a positive thing for the long-term growth in the industry. Great all right well, let's talk about your uh, home base for now in california um just uh you know what, is, what what is your sense of the where the resource adequacy market is or the ri market is now um, i understand from the that's getting you know very competitive and uh you know for obvious reasons it's contracted storage and you know you can do things you can bank that kind of stuff and uh, you know, by the way, there's everybody that's procuring it right now and making a requirement that it's part of like the next gen of procurement. So it's California's busy for this. Stuff. it's a busy market for many reasons. But um just give me a sense of uh where the RA market is and uh kind of where it needs to go.
1: Yeah, I think you're you're right that there's both a large volume of projects in the queue and and a significant amount of competition in uh in these. RF also these RFPs being run by the load serving entities. That said, the availability of projects that have real deliverability, signed interconnects, permits and equipment for near term, you know, projects is actually quite small. So I think the market is still extremely short on the front end. There's more optimism that by, you know, a few years from now that that will improve and pricing reflects that they're sort of priced into the market as an assumption that suddenly the supply is going to get bigger um i'm not sure why that is since permits aren't getting easier in california Um, gsu's aren't getting faster to order and interconnection isn't getting easier so uh, i don't totally buy the idea that the supply is going to go up that much i think it's going to remain short just because of all those challenges of supply chain permitting and a particularly of interconnection. So we see upward pressure on pricing, um, at least for the next few years. And there's a big disconnect between the near-term, short-term contracted, you know, the available, the, the prices that are available in a short-term basis for projects that can achieve COD in the next couple of years is much, much higher than anything that's coming out of the uh, RA process. And as you correctly pointed out, these kind of all source competitive solicitations end up, the price gets set by the, the lowest bidder and th- no offense to anyone in particular, that person may not actually understand the pro forma that they're bidding around if they're a new entrant. And I think you're going to see a lot of project failures with people being overly aggressive on price.
0: Uh, and getting on to that point, um, as you pointed out, um, California has become a hive for all the new technologies that you, you know, heard about at the beginning. And some of them are publicly traded companies as well. Um, but you're seeing um, longer duration projects that are now you know, being actively signing up with uh, CCAs, if I'm not too mistaken, um, alternative the lithium ion, uh, some combination of the two. Um, I often have called California the laboratory of clean energy um, in that sense. Yeah. Um, I think me and you have talked before about uh, desalinization, which is one of my favorite uh, sagas to cover. And, and those are sagas. but. Um, in any case, um, wh- what are you? Uh, what is? What's your sense of the long duration alternative lithium ion market at this point, um, mm-hmm. in terms of viability and where that needs to go?
1: Yeah, so we certainly think that longer duration storage is an essential part of the transition and, and decarbonization. There's that's not that, I don't think any reasonable person disagrees with that. I think the question is what technology is going to win that race and how quickly can we deploy it at scale. I think that's really the question. So we we always look at you know we're always looking at the newest technologies in that space because we would we would like to be in the long duration battery business also right now we're not seeing anything that we think is financeable today that's battery technology, that's Mm cost-effective, that's bankable. Um, But we see significant progress being made. There's been a huge amount of investment in the last couple of years. There's uh, dozens of VC-backed firms pushing all kinds of new chemistries and technologies. I personally am not an engineer by training, so I'm not going to suggest that I can have the best prognostication of who's going to win that race. But our view is it will happen relatively soon. There's also non-battery solutions. Uh, One of the companies in the GSAM portfolio, one of our sister companies is called HydroStore. They're one of the people that has contracts with California CCAs for advanced compressed air underground storage. So there's other things like that 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 are not batteries, which we wouldn't develop because that's not our, our focus. But we definitely see long duration batteries coming in. Uh, to the picture um, in the relatively near future, but it, today it's hard to point to who the clear winner is going to be that's bankable and and uh,
0: feasible. Do you think there's a level that comes next for these longer duration uh, projects, such as like, did some of these um, CCAs start looking to eight to, to 12 hour batteries first before Taking the lead to something more than that, or that's or... what I think. Yes, I mean, okay.
1: based on my understanding of the current technology, that seems the most likely outcome. Yes, I would agree. Okay. The biggest thing that is maybe people don't understand, that maybe do they do? But the easiest way for me to explain why going from four to eight, the economics are so challenging. It's not so much that building eight an eight-hour battery is. It's not exponentially more expensive than than a four-hour battery. It's that the revenue profile. The difference between the top and bottom two hours of the day is large the difference between the top and bottom eight is not <laughs> so right. that's really what it comes down to is that it, the it, someone's basically gonna have to pay for that battery on some kind of a toll or capacity basis because there's not a lot of r between the top and bottom eight mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah Very i think that's the fundamental piece that that not everybody understands about why longer duration storage is so challenging it's not a technical problem it's just that someone has to pay for that because there's not
0: a lot of arbitrage. The Economics. Got it. Okay. So, um, before we got in the air, we, uh, you, you were ready to and willing to talk about permitting reform within CAISO. So, um, you know, tell me, uh, you know, again, in your view, where, where we're at at this point for permitting or for re- <laughs> permitting reform and yeah. where does it need to go?
1: Well, first of all, we would, I was certainly, uh, I want to acknowledge you know Governor Newsom's efforts, I mean, the his, things he was already doing and the most recent thing he's announced to try to really put state resources behind uh, streamlining permitting for their high priority projects. Um, we think that's a great idea. We've seen it. I, I've been working in California for a long time. I think that originally started actually under Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was Governor, and it made a big difference it it did and And I think having that kind of high level executive support and visible advocacy for this stuff is helpful but that alone is not going to solve the problem um so great great efforts by the governor's office and we really do applaud those but i think the the fundamental issue is that every local community so we find often local communities not just in california but elsewhere want to sort of relitigate what the safety standards should be for these things that's why we have national fire protection standards that's why we have ul standards like these are nationally set standards we didn't just make them up as the industry And I don't, in in my opinion, we shouldn't have to debate that. There are national standards, we follow them, end of story. Like we shouldn't have to revisit this and and every town planning council try to evaluate, you know, what those risks and and mitigations should be. Another piece that I would strongly advocate is a fast track permitting process for best projects, especially, I mean, particularly if you're on disturbed land. So in other words, if you're not disturbing any biological or cultural resources, if it's an already disturbed industrial parcel or something of that nature, there should be a streamlined process. Because again, there's national standards for safety. You follow those. If you're not disturbing anything, why are we doing full EIRs? Like a bunch of our projects are on gravel pits, uh, uh, contaminated sites that are being cleaned up. Like There's really nothing to evaluate. (laughs) This site has been destroyed already. We're putting it back to use in something productive. so I think some kind of guaranteed timeline, which is not very popular in blue states. Uh, but having guaranteed timelines, I was just talking to the developer yesterday about other states that have that where from the, if you submit all the required information on a specific date, the time by which the agencies have to give you an answer is set in statute and they're held accountable to that, that would be the most productive thing that we could do. Okay.
0: Interesting. Um... So, are there any milestones on the horizon for for KISO? Do they have to come to any decisions in, in in the next this year? Or you think they're sorry? Do you think they're going to come to any decisions this year on this? Or? Well, I mean,
1: Kaiso doesn't really have a big role in in citing of best projects. It's really the state agencies, and most fundamentally, it's right. the local local jurisdictions that are, um, that are that are in the driver's seat. And I just think that we should have a clear set of standards that are very protective of human health and the environment. To be clear, that is absolutely we don't want to yeah, ever yeah. cut corners on that but if you're doing all those things you shouldn't have to spend 12 months debating this stuff and things mm-hmm. like what color should you paint the, the enclosures like there's a reason they're white it's because they're they're rated for a certain you know temperature and if you change the color as we've had people suggest that can that can pose you know problems with the performance of the equipment there's just a set of issues that we have to debate at every local jurisdiction that just doesn't make a huge amount of sense one last point on a yeah. on permitting I should have mentioned yeah. is the other thing I really like besides defined definitive timelines that everybody has to, to to abide by are objective standards. Like if you do these things, that's kind of the way permits work in some other states and in some other countries. And it works pretty well. It's like you have very specific uh, requirements and as long as you meet those, then you're allowed to proceed. It's the subjective ambiguous nature of things uh, in California that, that is challenging for developers like us, as long as there's clear rules that make sense, we're happy to follow them and on day one and
0: just not waste a lot of time arguing. Great. So, um, just to finish it off on the uh, M and a side, uh, you mentioned about your interest in ERCOT, uh, obviously it's been a pretty hot and heavy topic this year in terms of battery projects that, uh, are on the market. Um, you know, of all shapes and sizes, I think one rhetoric has been, um, you know, the developers kind of tries to lock in the equipment, uh, you know, gets the right permits and, you know, their own thesis about ownership is almost seems to be a little, you know, shaking a little bit because there's just a high frequency of projects that are now on the block in ARCOT, um, you know, whatever method the developer was capitalized. Um, but, um, just wanted to get your sense of the market and where where the attractive opportunities might be,
1: yeah, so I think there's a lot of things going on in Texas, and I agree with most with everything you said. A few points I would add to that. I think some of the well capitalized uh, developers just have an overweight position in Texas, right, like mm-hmm. you know having double digits of gigawatts in one state. Is just not realistic, no matter how well funded you are, you're not going to build all that at once. So I think with some of the bigger firms, um, they just have more than they can realistically build based on capital deployment. Um, and then a lot of smaller shops, I think, have gotten to the phase where it's, you know they're two, three years into the process and the it's suddenly costing a lot more money. And for the smaller shops, they're kind of at a point where they can't continue to advance multiple projects as the costs escalate and ratchet up. And the security requirements increase, so they're going to have to skinny up their portfolios and sell off, you know, and only keep a smaller number, or or just sell them. There was also a very robust sort of develop and flip market going on in Texas, and I think the um, that may be slowing down a bit just because the the supply uh, at a macro level. ERCOT has long proposed uh, storage projects, right? There's more stuff in the queue than most people think needs to get built in the relatively near future. But candidly, we've we've reviewed dozens and dozens of projects in ERCOT. And a lot of them, we just genuinely they're just head scratchers. Like, why did you pick that location? And half the time the developer doesn't even have an answer. It's like, <laughs> what's the siting thesis? What makes you think this is a great place to build a battery? And I think there was just a lot of uh, speculation going on and people didn't have a very uh, comprehensive approach to siting. So I think a lot of that is just not very well thought out and will fall apart. Um <laughs> But there's clearly going to be a lot of growth in storage in Texas. And even with all the hullabaloo about the policy changes from the last legislature, Texas will remain an attractive market. There's going to be a lot of volatility. There's going to be more, you know, uh, renewable generation added, lots of load growth more than anywhere else in America. So we continue to be to be optimistic about the Texas market. Great. Also, thermal retirements are still coming, right? Even if they're going to add some more gas, they're retiring a bunch of coal, they're retiring a bunch of gas, like that's still going to happen. So um, I think that that Texas will be, as it always is, it's a volatile market, not not just in terms of day-to-day volatility, but politically and regulatorily. And and anyone who goes into Texas needs to be
0: eyes open. Well, uh, thank you for that, Chris. And that's about all the time we got. So thank you for joining the program today and thank you uh, the, uh hope you enjoyed the program and uh tune in next time for work out thanks appreciate it